Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Tonight, our presentation is called The Day the Fire Goes Out. This is a continuation on from our presentation from last week, which is called The 1,000 Years. Now, but before we go into this study tonight, I want to do some valuable um, review. It will be helpful for us. Uh, for example, we know that the Bible talks about the thousand years in the, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. We know that the book of Revelation says that there, oh, the Bible talks about the resurrection of life, the resurrection of condemnation. We know that the resurrection of life commences at the second coming of Christ. We know that, right? We do know that. We also know that at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be the resurrection of condemnation. And what we've also learned is that the lost at the time of Christ's second coming, that is the wicked, they are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And those people who are in the graves, the wicked who are in the graves, they remain in the graves. That is those people who have died prior to the second coming of Christ, who have turned their backs on God. The Bible makes it very clear that the wicked remain in the graves until the end of the thousand years, uh, which was verified by John, uh, by Jesus. In, recorded in John chapter 5, 28, 29, and also in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and 5 to 7. So the Bible is very clear in relation to these matters. Now, as Jesus promised in John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, that the righteous are taken to heaven and there they spend 1,000 years. They reign with Christ there in those heavenly mansions. But we also saw that during the thousand years, the Bible warns us that the earth will be a blackened, ruined, desolate place. It will be unfit to sustain human life. And the question that we ask is why? Why is it unfit to sustain human life? Well, because of the events which precede the second coming of Christ and the event of the second coming of Christ. We learnt last week that in Revelation and other parts of the Bible, in fact, that there are judgments that come upon the earth that are to warn men and women in a dramatic way that the end is nigh. That's a biblical term, the end is nigh, that the end of the world is coming. And these events are to cause people to think, for them to wake, out, wake up out of their lethargy, to realize that the end is coming and they may need to make a principled decision on the knowledge that, the, <coughs> that they have. So the Bible talks about this world during the thousand, uh, prior to the second coming of Christ as being desolate decimated with trumpet blasts, with judgments, with plagues, these sort of things to rattle and to wake up men and women on planet earth in preparation for the second coming of Christ. We learned that the sun doesn't give its light, the moon becomes like blood, the stars fall from heaven. The Bible tells us that there's a massive earthquake at the, uh, just prior to the second coming of Christ. There's a hailstorm. The weight of those hailstones is about 32 kilos or thereabouts or 70 pounds, 75 pounds in the old imperial measurement, which absolutely decimate planet Earth. Uh, this veneer that surrounds our Earth, which we call the atmosphere, that recedes as the scroll, the Bible says, all these things show us and tell us that after the time of Christ's second coming, this earth during the thousand years is not going to be suitable for human habitation whatsoever. 
Now, let's think about something else. During the times, those end times, we know in that last generation that the earth will be a ruin. Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 26 and numerous other passages in the Bible tell us that there are events which destroy this earth. Now, why am I reiterating this? It's because there are many people in the Christian world, and I know last week that many of you that I saw under the lights, but I didn't see beyond the lights, but many of you be put up your hands saying, that's what you've been taught, that's what you've heard, that this earth is going to be a paradise during the thousand years in which you'll be able to live, in which the righteous will be able to live, and they spend a thousand years with Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach anything of a sort. It teaches the opposite, that the earth is going to be a ruin. It's, it's uh, without form and void, the Bible says, unsuitable to sustain human life. Now, what else did we learn? We also learned that during the 1,000 years, the righteous participate in a judgment uh, in which it allows them to review the evidence of God's decisions which preceded the second coming of Christ. And the reality in this world is there are many corrupt judges, there are many corrupt magistrates, but not one of them would think about putting someone in prison for 25 years or instituting the death penalty without first hearing the case. God's exactly the same. What God does is he lets the the wicked's peers hear their case. In other words, during the thousand years, the righteous review the records of those who have turned their backs on God. They evaluate the justice of God. They see what God has been able to do or attempted to do in order for their salvation. And at the end of that process, the righteous deem that God has done everything possible in order for those people to be saved. They are settled in their own minds that God is not capricious, that God is not malevolent, that God is not unjust. He is a merciful, generous, loving, uh, benevolent, kind, wonderful God who's done everything possible in order to reach out to those people by shaping the circumstances of life, by bringing people into their lives, introduce them to situations, have things placed in their letterbox, tracks, anything. God has used all sorts of opportunities to guide, direct people into the truth, but those people have chosen to do otherwise. Now, where did we get all that material from? All that material we got from the Bible, and we covered that last week. So here we are. We're ready to start now in our study in relation to the day the fire goes out. But let's begin with a prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing one more time, and uh, we will uh, get into our study now as we continue this part two. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us now as we open your word. We do pray for an extra measure of your spirit to rest upon us. And I pray that it would be understandable, it will be clear, it would be coherent, and that each person here would be glad that they know the sum total of your instruction in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Right, we're ready. Here we go. Who is the one who is responsible for the carnage, the death, the misery, the sorrow, the pain that is in, uh, that's in this earth today. Who's the one responsible? 
That's right, it's Satan. So the Bible calls him Lucifer, calls him Satan, calls him the deceiver, calls him the dragon. Let's turn now to Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 1. So let's see what happens now to Satan at the time of Christ's second coming. Then I saw what? What does it say? I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? For a thousand years. Notice what happens now. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little time. The Bible tells us that Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released for a short season. Isn't it interesting that we see this happening to the wicked to a certain extent, the wicked in the graves. The wicked remain in the graves for a thousand years and then at the end of the thousand years, they are released. Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years and then he is freed at the end of the thousand years. It's not accidental and we're going to learn why that is and how that is and why that actually happens. The Bible says that Satan is cast to the bottomless pit. Now, that phrase there, translated in the Greek, is the word abusos. So bottomless pit is translated from the Greek word abusos, and it's where we get our word abyss from. If we were to look at the New Testament, it's all written in Greek, except for the book of Matthew. That was written in Hebrew initially. But uh, the sum total of the um, uh, New Testament was eventually written all in Greek. And uh, we see that the book of Revelation was written in Greek as well. And as I said, that word abusos uh, is translated bottomless pit in the book of Revelation. Now, if we were to go back 300 years or 250 years or thereabouts prior to the time of Christ, there was a translation of the Hebrew um, Old Testament which was known as the Septuagint. It was written by 70 learned um, Jewish scholars in order to make uh, Judaism more acceptable and give it an opportunity to be known further throughout the Greek-speaking world. So they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek and as I said it was known as the Septuagint. Now when you study the Septuagint you actually see that the word abusos comes up. It actually comes up in the first chapter and it comes up in Genesis chapter 1 and I've, I've circled it there. Can you see that? That that Greek writing there is a busos and you can see it there. Now, I'm going to show you where it comes up in Genesis chapter 1 so you understand the connection between Genesis 1 and, Genesis, and Revelation chapter 20 where Satan is cast down to the bottomless pit. It says this, in the beginning God created what? He says, he created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And that's the Greek word abusos. The word deep there is abusos. And it's just referring to this earth which is not suitable for human habitation. Does that make sense? So before this earth was suitable to support 
terrestrial life, it's identified as the deep. It's without form and void. Jeremiah, you'll remember, he says that he saw the world. It looked as though it was our form and void. But remember, he's talking about the situation after the thousand years and he's describing the, the earth there. So when Jeremiah speaks about the earth without form and void. When John identifies the abusos as the bottomless pit, he's referring to this earth before it was suitable for human habitation. But let's go forward now to the time after the second coming of Christ, and it's identifying this earth not suitable to carry terrestrial life at all. Remember at the time of Christ's second coming, the earth is a desolate waste and Satan is cast down on the abusos, on the earth, and it's no longer suitable to carry human life at all. As I said in that text in in, uh, Jeremiah, it says, I behold the earth and indeed it was what? Without form and void and the heavens had no light and then it says in next verse 24 I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled and all the hills moved back and forth you see this is the result of the plagues that have struck the earth this is what Jeremiah sees the ruined world a a world that has been decimated by judgments and by plagues and all sorts of things that have happened prior to the second coming of Christ and this is where Satan is to be chained but a supernatural being is not going to be held by physical chains would you agree with that exactly so a supernatural being is not going to be held with physical chains so it must be referring to something else here the chains that bind Satan must be of a different nature altogether Have you ever been in a situation where somebody has rung you up and said, how about we do this tonight or we do that tomorrow night or whatever the case may be? And you've said to that person, well, actually, I can't do that because I'm I'm tied up. Now, the person on the other end of the phone doesn't imagine that you're actually physically tied up somewhere, do they? Of course they don't. They just know that circumstances don't allow you to be free that night so you could meet that engagement. And so you say, sorry, I can't do it. I'm more tied up. That's how it is for Satan during the 1,000 years. These are chains of circumstance with which bound uh, Satan to his earthly prism, this desolate waste. He's, if you like, in spiritual Siberia. The earth is a tiny black spot after the second coming of Christ um, in the corner of the universe. And this is where Satan is to speak, spend the 1,000 year. He has no one there to tempt because the righteous are in heaven. He has no one to deceive because the wicked are in the graves. And he and his demons remain upon this earth, this blackened earth, this ruined earth for the period of 1,000 years. But it's the divine command of God that causes him to stay there, not physical chains. How do we know this? Well, When we look at the New Testament, uh, there are a number of episodes where Satan acquiesced to the command of Jesus Christ. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, we read of Jesus going to the wilderness. The Bible tells us that he's led by the Holy Spirit. And then after 40 days of fasting, Satan comes to him and tempts him. And we read this in John, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him 
only shall thou serve there serve then the devil leave, left him or leave with him and behold angels came and ministered to him referring to Jesus even though Jesus was in a weakened condition during those uh, 40 days or at the closure of those 40 days of fa fasting, Satan had no alternative but to obey the divine command. Does that make sense? We don't read of Satan arguing because it's a divine command. You remember when Jesus was on the lake with the disciples, uh, they were in the boat and the Bible tells us that a great storm came up and the waves were crushing across the bow of the boat. They, it was in jeopardy of sinking. The Bible tells us that Jesus spoke those words, peace be still. And what happened? The Bible tells us that there was an immediate calm fell upon the entire lake there, Lake Galilee, Lake Gennesaret. And there uh, at the command of the divine one, at the command of Jesus Christ, the elements have to obey because he is the creator. The same thing applies for, 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 for Satan. The Bible tells us that he is cast into the bottomless pit or down on the bottomless pit. This earth, which is not suitable for human habitation, and it's the command of God that causes him to remain there in that place for that period on, on, of a thousand years. He, in fact, is on death row. He's waiting for his execution. He and the fallen angels, the demons that have followed him, who rebelled in heaven, who rebelled against God's love, against God's government, they, they stand on dead, death row for that thousand years. And the Bible says at the end of the thousand years, the judgment will play out and they will be executed. But we're going to read about that in a moment now. Let's go back to our study. We're going to um, Revelation chapter 21 now because Satan is bound for the thousand years. He's upon this earth. But something happens. Something happens prior to the resurrection of the wicked or the resurrection of condemnation. And we read this now in Revelation 21 verse 1 and 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of where? No surprise there, because Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. So the righteous at the time of Christ's second coming have gone to heaven. They've gone to the new Jerusalem. And here, John, in vision, at the end of the thousand years, he sees the new Jerusalem descend from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Imagine it. The earth is desolate. Then the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven at the end of the thousand years. In John chapter 14, verse 2, we read this. In my father's house are many mansions. I've already referred to you to this. If or not, so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place. The new Jerusalem, the city of God, descends from God out of heaven and settles upon the earth. Now, remember the size, the dimension of the new Jerusalem. It's huge. 2,300 kilometers in circumference, set out in a perfect square, or 1,500 miles in circumference, or thereabouts. But here, um, we're going to read what happens after the New Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven. Now, this is from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah was written around 450 years before the time of Christ. And uh, we read an interesting insight that helps us in our study of the thousand years. We read this. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh 
and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Let's pause here for a moment. I want you to understand this is not talking about prior to or at the second coming of Christ. This is talking about at the end of the thousand years and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Wait, what have we already learned about the second coming of Christ? That the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air and Jesus' feet don't touch the earth at the second coming of Christ. See, at the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven. But prior to that, we are told that Jesus' feet stand upon, uh, on that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. Now, remember, the earth is ruined. Jerusalem is a, is a ruin at this point in time. It's not a thriving metropolis, as some people like to teach. And then it says, and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. And it shall be in that day that the living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea and half of them towards the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over where? Over the entire earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name is what? His name is one. The Bible tells us that after the thousand years, when uh, the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven, that Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olive and it splits in two, forming a vast plain. And there rests the new Jerusalem, the camp of the saints, the, the city of God, the new Jerusalem there upon the, the ancient uh, site of where Jerusalem uh, currently sits today. Now, remember, as I said, this cannot be talking about the time of Christ's second coming. It can't be talking about that because Jesus' feet don't touch the earth at the time of Christ's second coming. And in fact, Revelation uh, 19 makes that very clear. First Thessalonians 4 makes that clear. Matthew chapter 24 um, makes that very clear as well. So this is referring to the time at the end End of the thousand years. This is when God will be king, that the Lord will be king over all the earth. Now, if we were to look, and we're going to, but if we're going to look at Luke, uh, Jude chapter 14 and verse 15, because in Jude, which is the book written, uh, which is the small little book just before the book of Revelation, it was written by the younger brother of Jesus. And it says in Jude chapter 14 and 15, in reference to the events after the second, after the thousand years are finished, it says this. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. Jude here is speaking about Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the man uh, that we identify in the book of Genesis. Um, and it says that Enoch, who lived uh, around 300 years on the earth, the Bible tells us that he was taken up by God. But he prophesied during his life. And one of those prophecies, uh, Jude records here, and he says this, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude here speaks of Enoch prophesying and he talks about people being judged 
well, prior to that, it talks about to execute judgment. So this is not judgment. This is an execution of the judgment. And who are going to be executed? Well, it tells us in a moment, but it says to convict all who are ungodly among all their ungodly deeds. Now, let's think about this. Many people on their deathbed will say after they've lived a life of absolute rebellion, I have got nothing to be sorry about. I've heard it. I've got nothing to be sorry about. They're going into a Christless slave, but they think they've got nothing to be sorry about. Such is the depth of rebellion in their hearts, even on their deathbed. But the Bible tells us here in the book of Jude that there's going to be an execution of the judgment. There's going to be a time when all who are ungodly among them, they will be convicted. In other words, their consciences, they're going to be pricked that they've done the wrong thing. And when a person is pricked that they've done the wrong thing, obviously there comes a confession after that. And we're going to read about that soon. But it identifying those people who have done ungodly things. They've spoken harsh things. They've done harsh things. And they've spoken against men and women who are believers in God. And they've also spoken against God himself. So this is identifying the rebellious, the wicked, the vile, the, um, the, the refuse of humanity, if you like, at the end of the thousand years, when the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven. Now, remember, we've already seen that at the end of the thousand years, the wicked are resurrected, and we're going to read this now. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years are finished. Yes, we know that. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That term Gog and Magog is just referring to the enemies of God. In the Old Testament, that, those, that phrase is used over uh, to identify those people who were rebellious, the, the absolute enemies of God and enemies of God's people. And then it says, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth. Now, where are the wicked now? Well, they haven't gone anywhere. They've been resurrected and they're on the breadth of the earth. Where's Satan? He's there as well because the Bible says that he has deceived them. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now we see the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven. The wicked are resurrected and now Satan has people again to deceive and they respond enthusiastically. And notice what it says in Revelation chapter 20 now and verse 13. It says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So here we in the resurrection of the wicked, we have those people whose number is as the sand of the sea. And it says that they are going to be judged. But before that actually takes place, Satan deceives them. Satan lures them again. And in one last assault, he leads them to take the city of God. And don't forget that at the resurrection of the wicked, 
You have the likes of Attila the Hun. You have the likes of Napoleon, Alexander. You have the, the likes of generals and leaders and the vilest of criminals that we've never even heard of who preceded the time of Christ, who preceded the time of, of Noah's flood. You have the sexually immoral. You have the brutalizers of men. Uh, you have the brutalizers of men. You have the brutalizers of women. You have the brutalizers of children. You have liars. You have pedophiles. You have all sorts that have come up at the resurrection of the wicked. And the Bible says that their number is as the sand of the sea. Now, when we studied the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ, we learnt that when the righteous are resurrected, they're actually changed. When the righteous living see the second coming of Christ, when the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord near, the righteous, both the living and the dead, are changed. They're made immortal, incorruptible, no longer drawn to sin. They don't have bodies that break down anymore. They are no longer subject to death. But when we read about the wicked and the resurrection of condemnation, we don't read of anything of the like there, nothing at all. We read, or our understanding is, that just the way they went down into the grave, sick, diseased, injury, whatever the case may be, that is the way they are resurrected at the end of the 1,000 years. But I don't want to read too much into the Bible here, but it's highly likely that Satan has claimed the power of resurrection in the sense that he is the one who takes credit for the resurrection of the wicked there. He tells them that it was his power that brought them forth from the graves. And if they just take the city within the city, within the new Jerusalem, there's something there. There's a tree, the tree of life. And if they eat of the tree of life, if they taste of the fruit on the tree of life, they will live forever. Now, this is not to be confused with the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis, but it's the same lie repeated again. Satan said to Adam and Eve, he said to all to Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you'll live forever. At the end of the thousand years, it's the same lie. He says, if you eat of the tree in the, in the New Jerusalem, you will live forever. But I want you to remember this. The Bible tells us that in the book of Enoch, that at the time of Christ's return, when the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven at the end of the thousand years, part of the purpose of that is to execute, what's the word there from Jude? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done. So they are to be executed. The judgment has sat. The jury has reached a conclusion. They've been judged by their peers. The verdict is in and the execution is the next appointment that the wicked have at the time, after the time of the resurrection. It can only happen when the minds of the righteous are settled that God has done everything possible for their salvation. Let's read on now. It says, And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books plural the Bible says this that when the wicked come to attack the city of God 
a judgment takes place and then God puts an end to sin in the, and throughout the universe by devouring foul fires because we read this in chapter 20 verse 19. It says they, that's referring to the wicked, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. We've already read this, but notice what happens. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. You know, if we just go back now, if we go back, we see that the wicked have surrounded the New Jerusalem. Uh, uh, They've been deceived by Satan. Then fire comes down from God out of heaven. But I just want to go back a little bit further because it talks about books there. It talks about books plural. It's not talking about the book of life singular. It's talking about books which has the words and the deeds and the actions of the lost recorded in there. And as these books are opened at the great white throne judgment, we can imagine that Satan and his evil host, including the lost, are convicted to their own peril that they have resisted God and they will declare that God, that the Lord is ruler over all the earth. Now, am I making this up? No, not at all. Because the Bible makes this very clear in a number of New Testament passages. But they have allowed themselves to be deceived throughout the life on this earth and also at the end of the thousand years by their immoral acts. They've defiled themselves. They've not shown themselves worthy of eternal life. This is the wicked I'm referring to now. They've allowed themselves to be inspired by Satan and be controlled. And all their blasphemous acts and all their filthy acts are brought to their remembrance now but what will follow follows this will absolutely amaze you because the apostle paul in inspiration records an incredible event that happens at the time of the great white judgment throne uh, scene that we are reading now notice this in philippians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 he says therefore god has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There on that vast plain surrounding the new Jerusalem, the wicked whose number is as the sand of the, the sea, the Bible tells us, bows and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul, inspired by God, tells us that every knee in heaven and earth will bow at that point in time. It has to be at the end of the thousand years because that's the only time when all those who have ever lived on earth the wicked and the righteous are together in that one place, except for the last generation of the wicked who were destroyed at the time of Christ's second coming. But when the great multitude uh, have, uh, are there, we have the wicked and we have the righteous. And all heaven, the Bible says, bows and the wicked confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible then says that fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours the wicked. What does the word devour mean? It means that there's absolutely nothing left. And then let's read this. In Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Who was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone? 
It's the devil. It's the devil and, and, uh, the, uh, who, who deceived them. Now, the point that I want to make here is that within Christianity today, there is a teaching that says that Satan is outside a fire, uh, stoking the fire and tormenting people for eternity. The Bible says, no, that is not true. Satan is actually in the fire and he will be destroyed. It's very clear that there is a punishment coming for Satan. Let's not make make no mistake about it all. Satan is not going to be outside the fire. He will be inside the fire. Further to that, the last thing to be destroyed on uh, on this earth, the last thing to experience death will be Satan himself. He will be the last being to experience death. And then the final thing that happens is death itself is destroyed. We read this in Revelation 20 verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is what? This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We are told in Revelation chapter 20 that the last thing to be destroyed is death itself. And we've just read a word here and the word I'll just go back because I want you to see that the text in verse 14 says, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. I want you to understand that that word Hades there, it doesn't refer to an eternal burning place. In fact, Hades is just the Greek word for the grave. It's the same word as used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Sheol, all it means is the grave. That's all it's referring to there. It says death and the grave are cast into the fire. In other words, there's going to be no more death from this point on. That's all the Bible is talking about there. After the wicked are destroyed, after the devil is destroyed, after the uh, Satan's demonic spirits are destroyed and every trace of sin has been erased from the earth and from the universe, the Bible promises something amazing. Now, before I go there, there's a phrase that it uses and it's called the second death. The Bible says that these people who are condemned who were executed at the end of the thousand years. They experienced what's known as the second death. The Bible gives us examples of those who will be eventually destroyed by the second death. In fact, it talks about the cowardly in Revelation 21 verse 8. It talks about the unbelievable, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters all and all lies shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is what it is the second death so the bible tells us there are people who experience two deaths some people as you study the bible they'll experience no death the people who are alive, the righteous who are alive at Christ's second coming and are taken up to meet the Lord in the air, they don't experience death. And then you have people who have died in this life through natural causes or accidents or disease. Those people are resurrected at the second coming of Christ and they are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. They have died once. But then you have another group who died twice and it's referring to the wicked. They've lived their life on this earth. They've been resurrected. And at the end of the thousand years, those same people are destroyed again. They experience the second death. In this life, 
everybody will experience death if the Lord does not return. Would you agree? Of course. But at the end of the thousand years, the wicked are going to be experiencing the second death. There is no second chance from that. There is no resurrection from the second death. In fact, those people who experience the second death are, are completely destroyed, as I said earlier. When we go to the book of Malachi, it says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly shall be what? shall be stubble and the day which is coming shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts that will leave them neither root nor branch you shall trample the wicked for they shall be what what's the word there ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I do this says the Lord of hosts so the Bible talks about the destruction of the wicked in flames of fire but those fires go out because the wicked are reduced to what they're reduced to ashes. As we look at the book of Psalms in Psalm 37, verse 20, we'll read this. But the wicked shall, what? What does it say there? The wicked shall perish uh, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish away into smoke. They shall vanish away. The Bible's clear, isn't it? That the wicked at the end of the thousand years, they are destroyed and they become like ashes so the bible is clear when the wicked are destroyed when god has dealt with the sin problem and he deals with it with fire because let's be honest fire is a very good antiseptic it's a very good disinfectant but what does god promise will happen after the wicked and sin is removed from the universe well this is what he says but in second peter chapter 3 verse 7 but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men but beloved do not forget this one thing that with the lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day now before we start applying this to the thousand year study that we've just looked at, I want to assure you that that's not the case. And all it's telling us here is that we measure, day, we measure time in our earthly life and uh, time seems to drag on, you know, one year, two years, three years. Well, it doesn't. It actually goes by very quickly. But to God, a thousand years in human speaking, in the human span, is uh, like the blinking of an eye. It's just like a day as far as God is concerned. So here, God, uh, Peter is talking about the loving mercy, the repentance and the desire for God to forgive. But he says this, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. So this helps explain the previous verse. Some people in Peter's day were saying, well, listen, come on, when's the second coming of Jesus going to be? They were getting agitated, they're getting worried. Why the delay? And Peter says, he's not slack. The Lord's not slack, but he is long-suffering towards us. So God is waiting for every person possible who can be saved to be saved 
not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. In other words, there's not going to be one single individual who's going to slip through the cracks as far as God's concerned. Those people who are going to respond in the appropriate way, those people will be saved. And then it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. We've read the We know this. But notice now what we read in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The Apostle Peter says that after every trace of sin has been removed from the universe by those devouring fires, God creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. The earth is going to be restored to its Edenic beauty. And we read more of this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have done what? They've passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them, and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be how much death no more death how much crying neither crying nor sorrow neither shall there be any more pain for the form of things are passed away and he that sat upon the throne said behold i make all things new and he said unto me right for these words are true and what's the last word there true and faithful imagine it a world in which there is no more death, in which there is no more sin, in which there is no more suffering. Well, it's hard to imagine, but it is going to be that way where men, women, boys and girls will live in safety. There'll be nothing to threaten them. Security will be assured. There'll be nothing that will harm them. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no disease. As they spend eternity on the earth made new, uh, communing in the restored earth with Jesus Christ, with the unfallen angels, with, the, with God the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and perhaps even and possibly with beings from unfallen worlds. Who's to say what's beyond there? But what we actually see is that God creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, we read this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall do what? They shall inherit the earth now it's not this earth it's not this sin stained earth it's the earth made new and uh, the bible says here well jesus himself says the meek shall inherit the earth now when it talks about meek here i don't want you to think for a moment that it's talking about wallflowers it's not talking about people who uh who get trampled on who are just who just get knocked around and people who are just 
uh, subservient to everyone else. It's not talking about that. The word there in the Greek is more closely aligned to the bridling of wild horses. In other words, the meek are overcomers. These people have submitted themselves to the authority of Christ and all those negative traits of their character, uh, anger, jealousy, lust, uh, uh, dirty thoughts, um, uh, thievery, uh, slovenliness, uh, all these sort of things. They've had the victory over those things because they submitted themselves to the power of Jesus Christ, to the power of the Holy Spirit, and they have moved forward in faith and they are overcomers. They have been transformed into the image of God. When we study this subject of the earth made new, of the thousand years, that the fact that the fires go out, we have to realise this and recognise this, that this is all part of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. You see, remember, in the beginning, in the beginning, in Genesis, we have, Revel- we have Eden lost. But when we get to the book of Revelation, we have Eden restored. The word is so clear. The Bible is so plain and easy to understand. And what we've done tonight is we've compared Scripture with Scripture. We've compared Bible verse with Bible verse. And we've understood now, we're getting to understand the total of God's instruction in relation to what happens after the second coming of Christ. But think about this. Even in God's dealing with the wicked, He is merciful. He's merciful. God doesn't torture the wicked for eternity. He puts them to sleep at the end because the fires go out. It's good news. Wonderful news, friends. And as I've said from the beginning, the truth has nothing to fear from from investigation. There are no contradictions in the Bible. We don't have to do any mental gymnastics. And now more and more we're seeing the way doctrine fits into doctrine. There's complete harmony. Why? Because it is inspired by God. The Bible is God's inspired word. So let's summarize everything that we've learned over these last two sessions now in closing. We see that at the time of Christ's return, it commences the 1,000 years. We see that the righteous are resurrected from the dead and the righteous saints are all gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. We see that the wicked are slain by the brightness of his coming. We see at the the start of the 1,000 years or so that Satan is bound on the earth by chains of circumstances, the command of God. We also see that the earth is desolate during the 1,000 years also. But there's other things that we've learnt in relation to the 1,000 years. For example, the righteous are in heaven and they participate in a judgment to vindicate the character of God. We see that the wicked dead remain in the graves. They, uh, They did not come forward at the time of Christ's second coming. They're waiting to the resurrection of condemnation. We see that Satan is bound, as I said, by chains of circumstances, during the thousand years and the earth is at rest for 1000 years it's in a desolate state but it's in rest then at the end of the thousand years we have the resurrection of condemnation we see the christ the saints and the city descend from god out of heaven remember who the saints are they are god's people and we see that the wicked are raised from the dead satan is loose from his prison now he's freed to deceive people we have the judgment scene where the uh, the wicked are destroyed 
destroyed. And then finally, Satan and sinners themselves are all destroyed in the lake of fire. And finally, those same fires which destroy the wicked and remove every trace of sin cleanses the earth and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the sum total of our last two nights of presentations here. So where did we get all this information from? We got it all from the Bible, friends. We've covered a lot of ground here tonight. And uh, I want to ask you some questions. How many here now understand that the earth is desolate during the thousand years? Put up your hand if you understand that. Okay, God bless you. I can't see beyond the lights, but I can see. God bless you. Wonderful. Put your hand up also. If you believe that at the time of uh, Christ's return, the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air and the wicked who are in the graves, they remain in the graves until the end of the thousand years. God bless you. And finally, one last question. Raise your hand if you're clear and you understand that Satan is not going to tend any fires. He's actually going to be destroyed in fires and death is going to be destroyed. Put up your hand. God bless you all. Wonderful, everyone. Now, congratulations on that because we've covered a lot of ground. You're going to get material as you go out. You're going to receive the Bible study. You're going to receive the handouts. Now, next week, we're going to be asking the question, is eternal torment real? This is a big question because it reflects on the mercy of God, the character of God himself. So we're going to be asking that question. For those people who are watching this presentation on uh, YouTube, on the internet, uh, live streaming, this series of meetings, all you have to do is go to the address that's on the screen, theorchardmelbourne.org.au. Go to the Contact Us tab and uh, we will send the material out to you uh, no matter where you live in the world in very quick time. All right. Well, let's close our time together now with a prayer. And uh, let's, let's ask the Lord's blessing as we make our way homes into our motels or hotels, wherever we're all going. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you've been able to do here today. We thank you or tonight. We thank you for your blessings upon us. We thank you for the wealth of information that we have in the Bible and we're absolutely amazed by what it contains. So all praise and all honour to you, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. Can see you.
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.